The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. glad to have the Belhaven boys here with us, and for their benefit I may just say briefly what we have been trying to do. We have been trying to present the totality Christian truth, a picture of Christian truth as a whole, setting it over against what is not Christian truth, and our point has been that there are not 57 varieties of non-Christian positions, but only one other position, and that all the differences between non-Christian positions are in the last analysis, not of basic importance. The basic thing is that all people need the same Christ for the same reason. They are all sinners, that is, they have all made themselves their own gods. They have made God in their own image. Now, that's the notion of autonomy. With it, they have made this world to be what it isn't. That is, they've tried to make think of this world as just there, which means the facts are facts of themselves, not because God has created them, does control them, or does direct them, but because they are just automatically by chance there, brute facts. That's the non-rational, purely contingent principle of individuation. In addition to that, in third place, man who isn't a Christian makes an abstract principle of logic the principle by which he tries to unify all experience. Now, that is true, therefore, of the early Greeks, Thales, who said all is water, and Eximander, who said all is apairon, and Eximenes, who said all is air, and Parmenides said who all is one, is static, Heraclitus, who said all is flux, Plato, who said to be sure there are two aspects to reality but the higher is the real one the lower isn't real this is just appearance the world of space and time isn't really real the real world is up there and Aristotle who says all being is analogical namely that in one being there is a measure of change and variety and a measure of identity it's all one process from potentiality to actuality by way of the four causes the material, the efficient, the formal, and the final cause. All reality is one process. Now, the important thing about all of this Greek form matter scheme, as Dewey calls it, is that they, all of them, without any difference on the basic issue, agree that reality is of one sort and that they all, therefore, wipe out in effect, if not in so many words, the creator-creature distinction. They say that God's being and man's being are the same being. God has more of it. It's heavier being, it's thicker being, it's higher being, but it's man's lower being and less being and almost no being. It's the same being, just the same. Now, that is, you see, to say in effect that the creator-creature distinction is not made basic. And if you don't make that first, if you don't start with that, you can never get it in later. It's just too late to start with the notion of being and then say, well, now we got being and now what's the difference between God? 
Well, God's being is thicker being than our being, heavier being, more being, deeper being, higher being, whatever other, but just the same, not creator being, and man not the creature being. Now, this is how far we have come, just hastily, and we this morning dealt with the earliest of the church fathers, namely Justin Martyr, in order to see, who is the first great apologist for the Christian religion. He was a philosopher. He was, he was converted to Christianity, and he accepted Christ personally, and therefore he was now interested in bringing his fellow philosophers also into Christianity, saying to them, in effect, look how much better it is. But he didn't say that it was something radically different. He didn't challenge them to forsake their basic idea of man or their basic idea of the facts of the universe as there by chance or their basic philosophy of rationality as being an abstract principle of logic by which they must gather together all these facts that are there by chance. Now, therefore, he says that Socrates and other Greeks were, as it were, pre-Christian Christians. They were monotheists. Plato believed in one God, Aristotle believed in one God, one thought thinking itself. Well, isn't that a very good sort of theism or monotheism? Isn't it far better to have this monotheism, this idea of one God rather than the polytheism that had preceded them of these earlier, at these earlier stages? Well, so then he says to these Greek philosophers, these friends of his, look here, brothers, why don't you come in? The water is fine. It's better here. I believe in Christ. He is a better teacher, but he is not so radically different that you have to forsake what you've got. You can keep what you've got. You've got your theism. Add Christianity to it. Now, that is just not what Christianity is. Christianity is that philosophy of life which challenges every other philosophy of life. It's a totality philosophy. It's a war to the death between it and all other forms because all other forms are the same. Now, therefore, we had Justin Martyr in his apology to the Greeks, first and second, and then he was talking with the Jew, tribe of the Jew, and you had the same story. He couldn't identify Jesus to be the Son of God, the promised Messiah. Trifo said every time, look, how do you prove to me that Jesus, the one in whom you believe, is the one that our Old Testament speaks of. And every time the trouble with him is when he's going to give it, he has to describe just Jesus in general terms, just because he will not start with Jesus. Now, we saw briefly that Jesus himself starts with himself. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Jesus challenges the Pharisees and says, unless you start with me, you don't even understand the Old Testament. You claim to be experts in the Old Testament, but you don't know Moses and the prophets, unless you admit that they speak of me. They are intelligible in terms of me. You don't pick up at night a lantern or an electric light bulb in order to look whether there is a sun somewhere. It's a contradiction in terms. By definition, every light that we know anything about in this world is derivative from the sun. The sun is the original. The others are all derivative. Well, don't you see? If you start with the derivative, if you start with, a, with an electric light uh, as though it had power in itself and was sufficient to itself, could generate power infinitely within itself, 
Well, there isn't any such thing. What you can show is that there is no such thing, and that only in Christ is there one who is power, who is substance, who is, who is the one that can call himself I and make it stick. Now, therefore, that is not the way, unfortunately, in which uh, Justin starts. And then we saw that Irenaeus, who was the second one we discussed, who writes against Herod, against heresies, uh, is, does much the same thing over again. They take the Logos theology of the Greeks, the word theology, and apply it to Christ as the Logos. Christ is the word. The word was God, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And they take for granted that this is what the Greeks really meant. Well, the Greeks meant, of course, no such thing. The Greeks meant that there is a logos in reality, not because the world is created according to the will and purpose of God and through the Christ, the Son of God. That's not what they meant. They were descendants of Adam and Eve, and through Adam and Eve they had the apostate attitude toward all reality, namely they were after suppressing the truth within themselves as God speaks to them through their own constitution and as God speaks to them through the facts round about them in the world. Now, that is true even in a sense of Tertullian. Now, Tertullian makes a very fine radical step forward when he says, let's start from our own rule of faith, from Christ speaking to us in the scriptures. And what do we find there? We find the triune God there. We don't find some abstract personal principle like Aristotle has. Let's therefore start from itself. But then he falls back into discussing once more the nature of the soul of man, and he finds that this individual soul is inherently Christian. Therefore, he finds again what his predecessors also found in Greek philosophy, a prefiguration of Christian philosophy. Now, nevertheless, he does say, what does Jerusalem have to do with Athens? And he does make a sharp contrast, and he makes a statement which has often been translated credo quia absurdum, I believe, because of his absurd. He didn't say that, but he said something sounding similar to it. I believe what you think is absurd, but I can show you that it isn't absurd, even in terms of your own principles. And there's where he, of course, made his mistake. We can't show Christianity is not absurd if you accept their absurd principles. Now, we're now going to go on then, unless there be questions, to these Alexandrians, Clement and Origen. Now, they were much more sympathetic even to Greek thinking than were these other church fathers. When you read some of the books that deal with the difference, for instance, between Tertullian, who then is reported as having said I believe because it is absurd, and Clement, then they say, well, look, Clement had a much more positive attitude toward the Greeks. Uh, Tertullian was one of these negative fellows. He said everything that the that Greeks had produced was wrong, and it was bad, and it's that's due to, in his extreme view of total depravity, something like Van Til, this fellow. <laughs> Tertullian, don't you see? They're all bad, and they must all be hit over the head with a hatchet or something, preferably a good sharp one. Now, uh, they say Clement has a much more positive attitude. Now, let's look at this positive attitude and what its nature is. Well, Clement, 
is positive in the sense, in the first place, he is no doubt truly a Christian. He believes the Christian position. So does Origen. Origen, as you know, has written a great deal, has spent a great deal of study on the Bible and has written one of these huge polyglots on the Bible. Now, but when Clement comes to these questions of what does it mean that you must be converted and what does it mean that you as a Christian when you are converted you discipline yourself in the Christian faith and what does it mean that you seek for enlightenment the stromatize well he says that it means to go beyond the Greeks it means that we can accept what the Greeks have said as being alright nothing wrong with it basically you see he does not challenge its principle of interpretation he does not challenge them to admit that they have a wrong view of God and a wrong view of man no quite the contrary he says the Greeks are right in their view of God as anonymous God is the holy other you remember an examiner said that God is apairon indeterminate nobody knows anything about God nobody can say anything of him and that Plato that when he tried logically to relate the world of this this world to the world of up there he said this is good as we call it this is evil as we call it God is the source of the good certainly God is not the source of the evil so there must be an other source of this evil namely an other main absolute evil so then you have good and evil intellectually and apart with one another and the only way he could overcome the dualism was not by logical argumentation by philosophical argument, by ethical postulation, which Diotima the inspired, a woman with her intuition, says the good must somehow prevail over the evil. We must have a God whose good is absolute, who is above anything that anybody can say about him. Now that notion of the holy otherness of God, which is built into Greek thinking, particularly into Plato's thinking is taken over later by Plotinus, the last of the great Greek philosophers who lived in the early Christian era, who influenced St. Augustine a great deal. Plato and Plotinus, both of them, influenced Augustine in his early years. Now, this is the God, says Clement, that we too serve. We have the same God, and reason can prove this, the existence of this God, or we start from the same view of man and therefore we philosophically go beyond that and we reach out to higher and higher we have a two-legged chicken we have a four-legged cow and then we say that's quite a difference but when it comes to legs but when it, <laughs> when it comes to animality as to or a non-animality or organic and non-organic then you forget about the legs whether you get whether you have a thousand figure, whether you have a centipede or whatever you have, you're not interested. Well, you go higher and higher and higher until you get to the highest, and that's one. Aristotle is God is one just because he has no content. Now, that's a very important thing. Gilles Saint, the great Roman Catholic theologian and philosopher who writes a great deal, who has a famous book, you know, on the medieval uh, on medieval philosophy says that the God of Aristotle is the God who is one but he is one because he is out of contact with this world 
as soon as that God of Aristotle comes into contact with this world, then he is no longer one. Then he becomes automatically plural. He becomes, he is correlative. If he has any contact with this world, he's correlative to the world. Now that is to say that the Greeks have this total form and matter scheme. Let me see my eraser. What happened to it? Oh, thank you. Now you have therefore this. Here's the individual, and he has a universal up there. That's the form, and here is the matter. Now Aristotle somehow gets them together, but the form is the uh, thought thinking of says no aces no acos thought thinking itself well what does it mean for thought to be thinking itself it means precisely nothing you can have a you can have a thinker i mean a person who thinks but you can't have a thought thinking but you see it ends up with an impersonal negative concept which is above all differentiation therefore to say that greek thinking is monotheistic and that Aristotle believes in one God, and to also say Christianity is monotheistic because Christianity also believes in God, one God. And then to say that the God of Aristotle and the God of Christianity are the same God is confusion worse confounded. Now, Gilson does, to be sure, make a difference. He says, it is true that Aristotle was dealing since he was a philosopher and he did not have the benefit of special redemptive revelation such as we Christians have. He had to think in terms of essences and we who have scripture can listen to Moses when he says in Exodus 6, the Lord thy God is one God, God is being, I am. When Moses says, what shall I say to the Pharaoh who has sent me? Say, I am has sent you. That is being. He struck that off at one blow, says Yilson. Struck it off at one, at one blow, yes. Yavol, to be sure. But uh, what does that mean? What is being? Does that any more personal than essence? Not at all. That's not what the Old Testament means when it says, I am. That means the God of Abraham, doesn't it? God who had spoken to Abraham. The God who is actually the God of our and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and who is the, with Christ in the Spirit, the triune God. He says that he is the one who is the self-referential one who does not need to appeal to any principles next to him or above him or any stuff beneath him who is that one. Now, that is where the difficulty comes in. When you are in this fashion attempting to have what is called a positive appreciation or attitude to the Greeks, well, what do you mean by having a positive? Well, it's good for a Roman Catholic. It's, it's, that is to say, if you are a Roman Catholic, you are a Roman Catholic, first of all, because you have this miserable positive attitude to the Greeks because you have tied yourself onto a pagan deity. In other words, you have accepted a philosophy, or rather a methodological principle of Aristotle, by which you get this. This is the result of Aristotle's method. Aristotle is the father of logic, and he's a pretty decent logician. He knows what he's talking about. What comes out of his logic 
his principles of logic is this kind of God, not another God, but this one. Now, therefore, if you want to accept the philosophy of the law of contradiction in the way that Aristotle has worked it out, now we all must use the law of contradiction, but we use it, we start with a Christian position, which is the creator creature distinction and then we say man has been given logical abilities by God his creator man is made in God's image and therefore he must think logically because those are the laws of thought just like the laws of gravitation you must obey physically you must obey the laws of thought logically but that doesn't mean that by the laws of thought you legislate what can or cannot exist and that's precisely what the Greeks did we saw Parmenides that he said there cannot be a creation out of nothing there cannot be that's legislating that's laying down the law as to what God can or cannot be or can or cannot do now don't you see how absolutely contrasting the two positions are and yet the Greeks and yet the Roman Catholics have to bring them to the two together now why is that well it is because the Roman Catholics are not willing to do which is the elemental requirements of Christianity to be done to interpret this, the human self in terms of what of the self-identifying Christ namely you are what are you well the image bearer of God you are what are you the one who in Adam has fallen broken the covenant you are the sinful human being who is now empty and trying all the time to hold under the truth and unrighteousness. Now that is what you are, and now what are you? In the third place, if you know who you are, you are a Christian, a believer, because Christ has died for you and set you free from this and has set your feet on solid ground. And now you look at reality once more and see it for what it actually is and you're no longer squeezing it. Now, the Greek farm matter scheme is squeezing this scheme of things into this farm matter scheme. And you, you've got to take either one or the other. You invariably do take either one or you take the other because it isn't a question of details, of facts, and you can't argue about the resurrection of Jesus Christ as a fact without asking what is the resurrection of part of the resurrection on the Christian scheme is the son of God who is the creator through whom the worlds are made who died in his human nature for our sins he rose from the dead and in that resurrection from the dead for our justification he has set us free from the wrath to come he has set us on the staircase that leads upward to eternal glory. Now, that is the fact of the resurrection. You can't do what Wilbur Smith does. Say, we can talk about that Christ rose from the dead first and then ask, what is the resurrection? You can't talk about a that and afterwards about what. Don't you see? That's meaningless to talk about that God exists, to prove that God exists. Well, my goodness, what good does it do you to prove that God exists if the God that does exist proves to be the devil? That's the issue. 
you must say what God you are interested in proving as, as existing, must you not? So, here you prove that God exists. And then you say, well, then you, you go fishing with a net and you catch something, wonder what I've got, a, a squid or a, or a shark or an edible fish. You're drawing up a God from that other world and then looking at it, what in the world your net, your methodology has brought up. Well, the methodology that you know anything about is involved in the position, and that I would say that's always true. A method and a position are always involved in one another. Logic is not a neutral something. It isn't like a sharp knife, which a bread knife, you can either use it to cut bread with and give it to your covenant children, or you can cut your throat with it. In other words, that is what people often think of as being what a method is, that you can come to any conclusion with. I would say, on the contrary, a starting point and a method and a conclusion are always involved in one another. Now, isn't that horrible? Yes, here's the non-Christian starting point, the non-Christian method, and the non-Christian conclusion. You don't start with a method here, uh, with a starting point there, the same between Christians and non-Christians, and then the method the same, and then, now, look here, my friend, I want you to come to this conclusion, to the Christian conclusion, not to that conclusion, as though you were on the starting point and on the methodology in agreement with him. It is fatal, absolutely fatal, to your own efforts if you grant that the starting point is the same. The starting point is not the same. There isn't one fact on which the Christian and the non-Christian agree as to its nature. Don't you see? For you, every fact is a created fact. For him, no fact. For every fact is a non-created fact. There isn't any more basic difference than that. And your fact you know every fact is what, according to the providence of God, it is and must be. For him, every fact is and must be what is not in accordance with the providence of God. Well, therefore, if you grant that he starts right and that you, a method, such as Aristotle has, for instance, which comes, which fits in with that starting point, then it's a foregone conclusion that he will get you to his conclusion unless he is inconsistent. Now, if he wants to be inconsistent, and if you can get him to be inconsistent, well, that's wonderful. Then you make Christians by stealth, so to speak, <laughs> when they aren't looking. Well, or especially when they aren't thinking. Now, that's what we ought not to do. We ought to make self-conscious Christians, particularly today, we, ought, we want Christian people today who know and believe why they are Christians and can give account of their own faith because that's what is needed in order to break down the position of others. If you take the fully Christian position, then you can say, well, now you don't like this, do you? That you have a method that's included in the position and vice versa. All right, then I say, let's go on your position for argument's sake. You start with a cell, that's your starting point, not created, therefore <coughs> floating around in an ocean, a shore of chance. You start with facts, 
that are not created. Therefore, you have pure contingency as a principle of individuation. You start with an abstract, impersonal principle of logic. That's your string. It has to be infinite. You have to do what in our position God does. God, for us, has strung all the beads. He has one comprehensive plan. We know in advance. He tells us what he is doing, and not in every detail, and we don't understand it exhaustively at all. But nevertheless, we have his word for it. If a little boy goes out in the woods with his dad, he may be only six years old, and he's got a pop gun or a baby gun, but he's not afraid because his dad is with him. Well, that's the way we are. We are not ourselves wiser or better than our others, and we don't have insights of our own. What we have received, says Paul, we have received by grace. But having received it, it is the truth. And we can now, with this truth that has been given us, point out that any other position that anybody has, and then it makes no difference what that position is, whether it's idealistic, realistic, critical, realistic, existentialistic, this or that or what have you, right down to Sat, from Thales to Sat. You have these principles, and then you can show that he is a man of water that's going around building a ladder of water, setting it on the water, putting it against the water, climbing out of the water, can't get on the first ladder, rung of the ladder of water because he's made of water. Now, <laughs> that's not funny. I don't object your laughing. I don't mean that. But I mean that is actually the absurdity to which we must reduce his position. And then we're absolutely in accord with what Paul says, hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world. Now, Paul knew what he was talking about. He knew his Greek philosophy. Well, the Greeks, in their philosophy, what had happened was all is water. All is, all is, all is, all is, all is, all is. All of them said all is. That's the big point about it. They all said they didn't prove. They never proved. They didn't even attempt to prove. Nobody could prove that all reality is one being. Because obviously, so far as they have any experience of, of, of at all, it isn't all one substance. You can't prove that all time and change is a changeless something, nor can you show that all permanence is all flux, nor can you show in what proportion it's flux and is not what proportion it isn't flux. So there is no meaning to this whole process. And that's why Paul says, hath not God. Now, my friends, he says, will you not look at what has happened in the course of Greek philosophy? Do you not see that this philosophy that your wise men on whom you base your thinking, I come to you as a Jew with asking you to believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is a Jew, on whom you base your thinking, I come to you as a Jew with asking you to believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is a Jew, as far as his humanity is concerned. And I ask you to admit that you are creatures, that what the Old Testament, our Old Testament says, is true about you, and that you have sinned, and that you must repent, and that he has come, and that he, if you repent from your sin and plead for forgiveness of his sins through his blood, and that he will forgive and that he will then, through his justification, set you on the way to the eternal glory. Now, I ask you to believe that, to accept that. You won't do it very well. You say, I must give you reasons, in such reasons as 
you think you are entitled to. Well, what reasons are you entitled to? You aren't entitled to any reasons. But if you can show me that you can make any sense out of experience at all, that you get, uh, really have a place to stand on. One of the early Greeks said, you know, Dwa ma pousto. Give me a place on which to stand. Give me leverage and I'll move the world. Uh, suppose you have an iceberg of a few million tons and suppose that you want to move it. Now, how do you go about it? Well, you're next to it, here's water. And you push, all right, push. Who's moving? You or the iceberg? Huh? Who's moving? The point is you don't have a push stove. You don't have anything on which to stand, any solid ground. If you only had a solid ground, you could move an iceberg, all right. They're not so hard to move. But if you only have something on which to stand, but if you have nothing to stand, all right. I saw a little girl one time sitting on her daddy's lap. It was on a train from New York from Detroit to Grand Rapids. She slapped her daddy in the face like that. Well, suppose her daddy had dropped her either in or outside the train. Do you suppose she would have slapped him? Could have slapped him? No. The presupposition of her ability to slap him in the face was that she, he was held her up. Well, now the presupposition of the non-believer saying that the Christian position is wrong is that the Christian position is right. In other words, if the Christian position, if reality is not what the Christian position on authority of Scripture says that it is, then reality is chaos. By definition, it's the only alternative there is. If man isn't what God through Christ in the Scripture says man is, then man is the white cat on an ocean bottomless, changeless, shoreless ocean. A white cat come up is not blue but white because of the stirrings of the infinitely bottomless, shoreless ocean. Now, then that white cat is here and says, cogito ergo sum, look me over. I'm a white cat. I'm not one of this horrible blue hoi polloi down below there. But the storm subsides and the white cat loses its identity in the deep blue sea. It's blue and it's gone under. Its identity is lost. Well, I'm, as you see, trying hard to find some forms of illustrations of the futility of a cons finding a concept of man which they must have. Yet that's what they must have, don't you see? In order to have something on which to stand an intelligent conception of man all of the world to which to apply their method, their so-called scientific method, don't you see? There is no such thing. Now, what possibilities are available? Greek philosophy has all is water, all is air, all is static, all is flux. Plato has two divisions. Aristotle has all reality is organic movement. It's all the same view of man. And when you get to modern times, you have the same story continued. So there is no solidity, no basis for predication. They, in the first place, can't find one point and make it differ from another point. They can't count. They can't account for counting. Of course they can count, just as well as we can, and there are great mathematicians who are not Christians, I think. Uh, 
Einstein was a pretty decent mathematician. <laughs> and there are said to have been only five people who understood Einstein, and I wasn't one of them. <laughs> I'm sad to admit it, but it's true. But the point is that Einstein couldn't count. I mean, he has no philosophy that accounts for the idea that one fact is different from another fact. And if one fact isn't different from another fact, you can't count. There has to be some difference between potato one and potato two. Suppose that you're in a cold and in a dark December night and you're looking for a black cat that isn't there and you are blind. Now, uh, in other words, the point is that all, Hegel said, this is the night in which all cows are black. All cats are gray. There is no differentiation, don't you see? Now, I'm trying to make this point, bring this point home to you for your consideration. You should not be afraid of any non-Christian philosophy. We should not be apologetically presenting our position as though it were just as good as, or maybe a trifle better, or even a whole lot better. A lot better. That's not the issue. The issue is, Quite the opposite. Ours is alone the basis on which anything can be said intelligently about anything. And if you granted that the other fellow could say, could even find one fact and distinguish it from another fact, you're, you're making a fatal concession because then you are admitting that he can predicate to some extent. And if he can predicate intelligently to some extent, then there isn't any reason why he shouldn't predicate all the way down the down and account for reality in a, by, in a way that is as good as yours or maybe even better than yours. Then you're on this better, worse, then you're on probability and improbability and all of that sort of situation. Well, if there are any questions now, please do ask. I was at this, yes. Well, in a practical form, that is the point to say, if you're talking to a man who's a non-Christian, and you say now, you, because you don't accept the Creator, preach your concept, you can't say anything. Uh, what, what does he use, what basis is responsible for knowing everything in order to know anything, to say anything. He should know. He should be able to in relate this fact intelligently to this fact and that. In other words, he has rejected the Christian position, which says that the fact is related to every other fact because God has a plan with respect to it. Now, he thinks that's authoritarian and that's rationalistic deterministic. And that, because you see, this includes the will the personality of man, you see. And he says, well, then I'm a puppet. All right, I say, if you don't like that, I don't pretend that I can see through the relationship of man's responsibility to God's all-comprehensive control. I know it's true. I accept it plainly on authority. Now, therefore, the only alternative is that you accept your position on your authority. There is no other authority. Then you are your own authority. All right, then after that, it's up to you to do what I don't pretend I am able to do, to account for accounting in terms of my philosophy as though I had concocted something. 
but in terms of a scheme which then by definition commits you to pure contingency and to a principle which you have to use you, you have no no longer any right to claim anything of my materials for interpreting you can't borrow stuff from me at all I won't let you have a dime since you reject the position you have not rejected me how often doesn't the Lord in the Old Testament say they have not rejected you Moses they have rejected me well that is what we say we don't we must make no pretenses we have received what we have received in grace by grace but just the same we have the truth not we ourselves all right therefore he must if he wants to pretend to have an intelligible basis if he just says oh I'm just rejecting your position because I don't like it and I hate it then he's speaking the truth he does dislike it and does hate it and that's the real reason why he rejects it his real reason can never be because he can disprove it because it this, this position must be true in order to for anything in the way of proof to have any significance on any basis now therefore I can say to him now it's your business to string all the beads to, to be take the place of an infinite mind which you obviously can't do and in addition to that your philosophy of fact of individuality is to the effect that they are like beads that have no two holes no holes in them and therefore no two of them can be strung now that's what I mean by saying that he can't count now then I'll tell you I say to him in addition the reason why you can count really practically and do and you're Einstein and you know that and you've made discoveries in mathematics and a great many non-Christians have made actual discoveries about what actually goes on in the world I would say yes that is because the world isn't what you say it is but it is what I say it is not I but my position which I accept on authority you remember I use the Lindley's illustration you remember during the Second World War when the Russians were on our side against the Germans and they went to Berlin they had the manpower but they didn't have the materiel we gave them on a Lend-Lease basis supposedly I don't know when we're getting it back exactly <laughs> but at any rate we were loaning them they were borrowing from us well what is happening is the uniformity of nature they all need that don't they where do they get it they steal it from us from the doctrine of providence if there were no providence there would be no uniformity of nature now we don't mind them doing that we're glad that they're doing it but they should pay tribute to the master of the mansion they should honor God for it it is your this is your campus God I'm just rearranging your things they shouldn't think that they can insult God by saying you I can do this thing of yourself and I will and still underhandedly have to sneak in the idea of uniformity of nature or even the conception of the coherence of the internal coherence of human personality in other words the human personality on this basis is a formal principle and a material principle and again Boston personalism is a movement in philosophy you may know something about it Knudsen 
and Baum and Knudsen and Brightman and others of Boston. They've worked up a personalistic philosophy in which they have tried to account for human personality. Well, they can't do it because they won't take the idea of human personality from the scriptures, from the authority of scriptures. They come up with an abstract formal principle, but then on terms of that formal principle, there's no difference between one personality and another personality. It's one person. It's the same form that Aristotle has. Or if they have the, to get away from that, they add the material. Well, then it's unrelated plurality. Don't you see? They cannot account. In other words, you can see it in Plotinus's philosophy. There is the absolutely, their absolute form above, and here's the matter. Here's the man in between. Well, he's composed of matter from this end, form from that end. Now, he looks upward, and he says, I want to be one with God. All right. Then he gets upward because he wants to get away from the from the uh, incoherence of pure matter, pure contingency, so he goes upward and upward. But then all of a sudden when he's there and the gates spring open, swing open for him, come on in, come and see Herein. And then all of a sudden when we'll say like in East Germany and they say, welcome uh, Latvian, welcome all your little countries, we'll make you all aspects of Russia. Now, then we've lost all individual identity as a nation. Uh, I see Mr. Bode was reading Mr. Ryan's book there, The Presbyterian Conflict. Well, now, Mr. Ryan was a Norwegian, and I was a Dutchman. He said, Casey said to me, uh, I used to be Norwegian, and you used to be Dutch. Now we're both German. That was when Hitler controlled Holland and Norway, see? Uh, we're both German now. Well, over, over here, we used to have some individuality, but now our individuality is, and that's what Goethe said, Sprich die Seelen, so Sprich when the individual has universality and therefore speaks in terms of concepts, it's no longer the individuality that speaks. So, when he's just about up to there, he's, oh, oh, they're trying to de-individualize me, they're trying to horizontalize me, they will accept me, they will turnpike me out of existence. <laughs> So then he rushes back in order to save his individuality, all right? But then he gets over here and here's chaos and old night and the bottomless Pacific. Then when he gets, he's drowning, his individuality is drowning. So let, let's go back, let's go back, let's go back, let's go back. I mean, it's an infinite, these shuttle trains that they have in underground shuttle trains, only this goes much faster. This has to go at infinite speed. Now, therefore, on this basis, man can understand himself only as paradoxical, as on the way, out this way and on the way, simultaneously off on two horses going in opposite directions. Now, that's as absurd as, the, as man is. He can't, there is no modern philosophy that can give you any intelligible concept of man. Don't you see? There is this book, what's his name that wrote it? The Irrational Man, for instance. You may have read this book. Well, he surveys the whole thing, but there's a lot of others. Existentialism wants to start with man and his existence and his individuality. Well, that's only an attempt to get away from the interpretation of man in terms of essence, essentialism. That is, the Hegelian type of thing and the pre-Hegelian. Well, that's only a dash toward the irrational. 
but nobody can dash this way and keep from losing and look except he'll lose himself unless he is meanwhile also going that way well now if therefore he wants to reject the Christian position I have the right to require of him that he give me a pusto an intelligible starting point in himself as because he has to start from himself as a supposedly self-intelligible personality to whom I must give an account to whom I must give reasons he being the judge now just think of Dr. Edward Carnell Dr. Edward Carnell passed away as you know he was at Fuller Seminary he was a former student of mine well unfortunately he got influenced by this Boston personalism of of Brightman and that Boston personalism deceived him into saying well let's say on the one hand he's an evangelical Christian he says uh, what the Bible says is true the Bible says it but then he says we'll prove this to the rational man now that's what he literally says the rational man and then uh, by the law of contradiction and so here sits the rational man the rational man and then here goes Hinduism it flunks here goes this religion flunks here go, comes Christianity it passes magna cum laude <laughs> why because the rational man has said it is in accordance with the law of contradiction well if it were in his sense of the term then Christianity wouldn't have any, there wouldn't be any Christianity left because then man and Christ the son of man would disappear in this abstract universal in other words uh, Carnell defeats his own purposes and by doing that and it's untrue to the Bible to say that the rational man has the right to judge of Christ every man must be humbly submitting himself to Christ we must not say to people we'll submit Christianity and the Christ and his claims to you as the proper judge as to what is right and right what Christ should do for you now no man knows the nature of sin and knows himself as a sinner for what he actually is unless by the Holy Spirit his eyes are open to his own condition a physician that is a true physician and comes to a patient at the bedside of the patient doesn't say kindly tell me what your diagnosis is and I'll give you the medicine to cure no oh he may ask and be polite and courteous especially if it's a nice lady and say uh, how do you feel but he will nevertheless put his stethoscope to your chest and he will make the diagnosis and say please off to the hospital we're going to take some tests of you we're going to tell you after that what's wrong with you now that's what we have to do to unbelievers people we have the medicine book they don't they haven't the, you can't the unbeliever can't say now Paul Tillich says philosophy can say what's wrong what man needs and Christianity can then provide the medicine well that's not the way it works that's not the way Christ claims he says I am the great physician I make the diagnosis you are a sinner there's nobody has made that diagnosis of himself that's the proof of the pudding unless he has come to believe through Christ has he has all Greek philosophy has any modern philosopher ever said I am a sinner any philosopher in terms of his philosophy no never the only person that has ever said that is like Luther or Calvin 
or Wesley, and they have found Christ who tells them what they are. Now, I was getting at this positive appreciation of the Greeks, which is unfortunately the case with Clement, that he says, I'll take your philosophy of man and build on it, build on it. And what we must do it is destroy it and start from scratch. You don't have a good dentist who says, look, I'll fill your tooth. He first drills out the decayed material, doesn't he? And then when it's thoroughly drilled out and clean, and he knows that it's clean, and he does it, he can see it, and he's got the driller, not you. And then he starts building up the filling. Well, so we have to drill into man's conception of himself and point out its rottenness, its absolute untenability, its every in every respect cannot stand before the judge. Christ is the judge. When Christ was on trial, um, Caiaphas and Pilate seemed to be the big boys. They had to say so. Actually, Jesus says, you will see the Son of Man sit on the clouds of heaven pretty soon. Things will be turned around. I am really moving things here. And I am really your judge. You are not really basically my judge. Well, unfortunately, Clement and Origen are trying to build the Christian position on top of the Greek position, don't you see, without challenging their philosophy of man, their philosophy of fact, and their philosophy of love. Well, the faculty is away today, and when the mice cats away, the mice will play. We took seven minutes instead of five for coffee this morning because they were all away. The bosses were away. I think we can skip out now, can't you? Don't you think we can? Early? Boy, Mr. Bode, you wouldn't tell on us, really? <laughs>